Welcome back, Kevin Burns, the executive producer of Ancient Aliens. You've done Alienation, Millennium. You've done uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's uh, documentaries, you, 20th Century Fox celebrations, Playboy, Superman, sci-fi, all sorts of you know fantasy every 14-year-old has lived through and wanted to be, and you've lived it all. Thank you for being back with us. How are you today? Oh, great. Thank you. And don't forget Lost in Space on Netflix, right. uh, The Curse of Oak Island. Um, you know, I, you know I'm, I, I admit to being old enough that I've done, I think it's close to a thousand hours of television in my time out here in Hollyweird. <laughs> well, you know, the name fits the town, so, so it's perfect. Uh, how did you go and become basically the conspiracy theory guy? I mean, you love sci-fi. Clearly, you know, you've worked with Playboy quite a bit, so there's an affinity for the ladies. Uh, you're a Boston University graduate. Were you there when Howard Stern was there? Uh, well, he was an undergrad there. I was a grad student there, uh, I think right after he left. But uh, I went there, you know, I went undergraduate to Hamilton College, and I was a history and English literature major. Uh, and every kid I went to college with pretty much went to either law school, business school, or medical school. And I really loved movies. I loved movies and TV. I was a media kid, and uh, I, I think I've said before, but my three favorite TV shows growing up were The Munsters, Lost in Space, and Batman. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was very visual. I used to draw my own comic books. And so I just realized after college um, that what I really wanted to do was go to film school. So I went to Boston University for graduate film school. And uh, not really knowing what kind of a career that would lead to, but uh, eventually, after seven years of teaching, I found myself out in Hollywood working at 20th Century Fox, and and then from then on became a producer. And uh, and I don't know that I'm a conspiracy theory guy so much as I'm a curious-minded. Uh, I admit to being a geek, uh, you know, but I'm a curious-minded individual. I'm open-minded. Uh, and I'm and I have a lot of interests and and if it's interesting and smart and fun, I'm into it. George Carlin said he'd rather have interests than hobbies because interests are cheaper. Do you follow that line of uh, ideology as well? Well, yeah, I do have <laughs> hobbies. Uh, one of them is buying a lot of stuff on eBay, which I call iBuy. Um, you know, I just changed the pronunciation a little bit, but the uh, but I, I'm 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 still a prolific and prodigious collector on the Munsters. Um, if you look me up, it says I have the biggest collection on the Munsters. Um, I don't know if I have the most pieces. I have a buddy in Pittsburgh who has quite a lot of stuff, but I have really incredibly rare stuff from that show, including Grandpa's electric chair, Lily's necklace, Herman's boots, and uh, Eddie's costume from Munster Go Home. Wow. So, um, but 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 uh, I digress. Uh, but yes, I'm I'm a uh, I, I love pop culture. I love things that are interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you mentioned, but. Uh, I'm working right now on another show for History Channel with one of my idols, uh, William Shatner. We're doing a show called The Unexplained, which premieres uh, actually a week from tonight uh, on uh, the History Channel. Wow. So you're all over the sci-fi world, and uh, Monsters is they're planning on making a Monsters comeback. Hopefully you have a hand in that, at least as a consultant. No, I don't, uh, but that's okay. I, I don't have a lot of faith in it because I think that as brilliant as the premise of that show was, um, that Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis really defined that show. I mean, they, they knew exactly how to do that show. And uh, I became, uh, I wouldn't say, I, I was a big fan of Fred's as a kid. I used to write to him when I was a kid. Uh, he would write back to me and send me drawings. I would send drawings to him. Uh, I did become very close friends with Al Lewis, and uh, I know Butch very well. I know all the cast very well. I mean, it's it, it's. I've had a, you know, for a kid who grew up in Schenectady, New York, watching television, I I got, I I, I realized all of my fourteen-year-old ambitions 
Um, so, you know, I, I, I jokingly say I aimed low so that I could hit the target. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've hit the target and put a giant hole in the bullseye. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, Alien Con Los Angeles has come and gone, but Alien Con Dallas is coming uh, the weekend of October 4th. What's it like now being able to interact with fans at these conventions since you're the ancient aliens guy? What, 132-plus episodes at this point? And counting. Uh, the network just ordered, you know, 40 more episodes. Um, we're about, oh, Six episodes into that into that order, but um, we're going to be producing Ancient Aliens well through the rest of the year, and uh, um, and it's fascinating. I mean, it, it's a journey that began, you know, about eleven years ago, um, when I had done a uh, a two hour special on Indiana Jones for Lucasfilm. Uh, I had I had done two big Star Wars specials for Lucas. Um, uh, one called the Empire, uh, uh, the the uh, uh, Star Wars, the um, Legacy Revealed, and uh, Empire of Dreams. Um, and they asked me if I would do one on Indiana Jones. So that opened up a can of worms about, you know, archaeologists and why do we dig, and we ended up doing it kind of in a style of a uh, Eric Von Daniken documentary I saw when I was in high school on Chariots of the Gods, and then that led to what was really not going to be more than a two-hour special on Chariots of the Gods, which we called Ancient Aliens, but it did so well, the network came back and said, could you do five more two-hour specials? And we're going to air them once a week. And when I was done with those, and they were very successful, I thought, well, I've covered the topic. I can't imagine they're going to want more. But it led to 10 more hours and then 15 more hours and then 16 more hours. And uh, and now we're doing season 12 and 40 episodes. So, um, but, it's, but I will say this. Um, you know, a lot of people just don't understand ancient aliens. They, they let the title fool them. And uh, sometime uh, years ago, uh, a former head of programming at the History Channel said, why do you think the show is so popular? And I said, because it's not about aliens. <laughs> I mean, it, it is theoretically, but it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's, it's the search for God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and not to get too heavy, but I think we want, you know, that today's science um, and I don't mean to slam science, but uh, but today's science is often too eager to be um, secular and dismissive of anything, um, uh, you know, wondrous in the universe. In other words, everything is uh, supposedly settled, or it's the Big Bang, or the idea that humans are nothing more than some random assemblage of protoplasm, and that our sentience, meaning our intelligence and our art, music, literature, speech, uh, and and ability to even have this conversation, are somehow just a fluke. Uh, you know, we're just an accident. And I think that unconsciously we don't believe that. Um, you know, to me, religion and science are both attempts to solve the same mysteries. Um, you know, we want to know where we came from, we want to know what our purpose is, and we want to know what happens to us when we die. And I think that what Ancient Aliens does is offers an interesting angle into those questions. We don't presume to answer them. We have theorists who we allow um, without prejudice to offer their their, their case. I don't agree with all of them, but but we allow them to speak freely. We allow the audience to listen and to weigh and to evaluate and to make up their own mind. But what we do is we ask a lot of questions about where did we come from? Are we the result of some uh, ancient alien uh, experimentation? Are we some hybrid uh, was there some divine intervention? Is there a God? Uh, is there something to um, our ability? Our, in other words, why humans are not like other primates or animals on this planet? Um, 
and and we look at science and we look at evidence and we look at history and archaeology, uh, all of which inform the topic. Uh, we don't dismiss science, but we look at ways that science could be reinterpreted. In other words, is the pyramid in in Egypt is it a tomb? Uh, as many people have often thought, uh, well, there's no evidence that it's a tomb. There's no evidence that it was a temple. Um, but there's an increasing amount of evidence that suggests that it may be far older than we thought, possibly a pre-flood structure. I mean, there definitely was some kind of a huge flood after the Ice Age. Um, but could it be something that existed in a culture or civilization before the flood? And could it have been part of an advanced civilization that may have used it as a power plant? Now, I'm not saying it was, but I'm saying that there's a theory that's pretty compelling, and that's what our show does. We let you um, listen to that, study it, hear the evidence, and judge for yourself. I like that. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, and it was, at one point, astronomy and astrology were the same science. Uh, it wasn't up until the Enlightenment era that the two were, were separated. Um, do you think the Enlightenment, in some sense, has become a hindrance to society where we've become too intellectual and have uh, diminished or completely disavowed our spiritual uh, elements? Well, I think that's, again, the war between religion and science. And I think that war between religion and science has been going on since the Middle Ages, you know, since the Inquisition. Uh, you know, um, religion at its worst is doctrinaire and intolerant of alternative ideas. Well, science at its worst becomes doctrinaire and intolerant of dissension or alternative opinion. And they, they, they clash. And um, unfortunately, um, they're not working together. In other words, there was a time, uh, probably, you know, a thousand years ago or more, where the metaphysical, the supernatural, um, the religious, seemed to be compatible with the physical world and the scientific world. Um, but we have somehow disassociated them. We have somehow taken sides that... Um, that if you believe that there's anything, whether it's extraterrestrial or extrasensory or extra-dimensional, um, that it must be anti-scientific. And I think that in itself is an anti-scientific attitude. I mean, you know, uh, you know, one of one of the premises of ancient aliens is, you know, uh, in fact, one of the one of the hits that the show gets from people who I think don't watch it is that it's somehow, quote-unquote, racist, as everything gets accused of being racist. But it's racist because we are somehow propagating the idea that the people of these, quote-unquote, third-world countries did not create these wondrous tombs and temples and pyramids and, uh, and extraordinary uh, cultural marvels. Well, we don't say that. The show doesn't say that, number one, because we don't put periods at the end of sentences. But number two, the pyramids say this. The people who built them carved these gods and these extraterrestrial creatures onto these tombs and temples. In other words, what's extraordinary when you think about it is every ancient religion, I mean, and I'm talking not only Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, ancient Egypt, ancient Samaria, ancient Babylon, um, all believe that the origin story is creatures or angels or beings or deities come from the sky, come from the heavens, come from the stars, come to earth, invest life into some creature that becomes man, gives them technology and sentience, uh, and then departs or stays, depending on, uh, you know, the religion, but they're all predicated on that. Even Native American cultures, uh, religions that would have had presumably no contact with each other, all have similar origin stories. Well, why is that? You know, and it's funny because 
um, you know, I got into a debate at the last Alien Con with William Shatner. We did a thing on stage, which was a lot of fun. And he was he was going on about how these ancient cultures you know, they have this tremendous ability. They, they, they created these structures and these miracles. And he goes on and on and on in his inimitable William Shatner cadence. And and I said, but then why don't you believe that this other aspect, that the religion was true? He said, well, they, they didn't understand why the sun went up in the morning, and they didn't understand how wind blew, and so they created gods um, as the simple... And I said, well, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. You can't just dismiss all religion as just some superstitious notion of how to answer complex scientific questions by conveniently coming up with gods, and yet ascribe to these same people feats of engineering genius and and polit- political and philosophical genius that we can't even duplicate or approximate today. So why do we why are we so quick to dismiss the stories of the Bible, for example, as just fantasy or fairy tale, as if they couldn't possibly happen? When, you know, to a, to, a, to a conservative religious person, the story of Moses is history. To an ancient astronaut theorist, the story of Moses is the story of a man's ability to enter a gateway into another dimension to retrieve the Ten Commandments. But to a secular humanist, it's a fantasy. It's a fairy tale. Um, it's it's just meant to keep the masses, uh, uh, you know, uh, humbled. Mm. Well, I, I don't presume to say which one is which. Uh, what I do like to do is explore these theories. Um, but the great thing about ancient aliens is that we give the audience credit for having a brain, right. and um, and and say, look, um, how do you explain them? that all of these carvings are on all of these temples all over the ancient world. How do you explain that in all of these ancient religious texts are evidence to support these claims? Um, and, that, and that, for example, uh, even though science wants you to quickly believe that you know, everything is explained by evolution, for example, um, well, if evolution explained humans entirely, why do we need clothes? Why didn't we just evolve to fit our environment where we wouldn't need to make clothes? We wouldn't need to build houses. Um, you know, in other words, it, it, it becomes kind of a, a more, you know, a puzzle because evolution doesn't explain everything either. You know, why aren't other primates or other animals similarly evolved? Why is it just us that has music and art? And language, um, you know, it's it, it it becomes an interesting puzzle. And again, I'm a curious person, so I, the, my interest in these shows is not to propagate a point of view. My interest in these shows is to is to share with the audience what I guess, in some ways, is my journey and the journey of the producers I work with. Um, uh, to explore questions I don't have the answers to. I want the answers. I think we all do. Um, but I don't presume to have the answer, but I do want to explore the question. Do you think that somehow we've killed curiosity with uh, education itself? Because, you know, we used to get in trouble for asking too many questions as kids. And now well, it just seems adults uh, don't want to ask questions anymore. Well, I mean... You know, I, I I have a very good friend who you know feels that you know like in in the in the uh, you know I was I was raised Catholic uh, and it's it's weird because you find that a lot of ancient astronaut people were raised Catholic, but um, and I think part of that is because Catholics are taught answers and they have to memorize answers. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, there's, Catholicism's not big on asking questions, whereas Judaism. Um, is very big on asking questions. I mean, like uh, classic, uh, traditional Talmudic Judaism is all about questions. And and questions, I, I have to say for myself, I'm, 
excited by questions. I like questions. Uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I ask questions. I like to meet people. I like people whose ideas are different from mine. And uh, but I, and I like to engage. I like to argue. I like to, I I want to know the truth. Um, I don't presume to have the answer. And um, but you know, in some ways, I was mentioning a friend of mine said, well, you know, in in uh, conservative culture or Christian culture, to some degree, questions are considered rude. And I do think that that is plaguing the educational system today. You know, you have a lot of people who. Um, are, you know, it's like, well, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be triggered. I don't want anything that's going to offend me. Uh, I don't want to say anything that's going to be offensive. Uh, that word will hurt me. Uh, that thought will offend me. And I think that's dangerous. That's not a free society. That is undermining the concept of free speech. Free speech, in other words, uh, you know, uh, it may sound outrageous, but, you know, I, I, I never, ever embraced the idea of making, quote, uh, you know, of, of, of outlawing, quote, hate speech. Um, uh, I, I say this not because I want to promote hate speech, um, but I think people have a right to be wrong. They have a right to hate now, I have a right to hate them back. I have a right to dislike what they stand for. I have a right to fight back at them. I have a right to shout them down. But people do have a right to express their opinion. I think because otherwise you're stifling opinion. You're hiding it. And I think that's why our Internet and our social media has become so particularly vulgar and vile. Because people hide behind pseudonyms and code names so that they feel that they can really talk there and they can really become the equivalent of hate words on a bathroom wall um, because in our society we've kind of muted speech we have under, we have uh, you know we've, we've uh, you know turned it into something that's not again not polite um, and so we, we are hiding the truth or at least hiding, I shouldn't say the truth, might be, might be the truth, but we're hiding the dialogue. We're hiding the discourse. And I think only through that kind of discourse, that dialogue, do you grow. Because it's either going to challenge your opinions and maybe make you change some of them, or it's going to strengthen your faith in your opinion, which is not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's been tested. <laughs> Yeah, I was telling somebody the other day, I prefer my racist to be overt instead of covert, because at least that way I can decide to say, you know, whether A, you let, you agree with this person, or B, oh, you're on that complete opposite end of the spectrum of thinking, I don't want to deal with you. Yeah, I mean, look, people have a right to be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I don't like bigots, but people have a right to be a bigot. Mm -hmm. um, you can't outlaw people's thoughts. Because once you get into that, you're 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 really in serious territory. Right. Um, now, I don't have a right to act on that, meaning I don't have the right to act hatefully toward another person. Um, I don't. I, I mean, that should be outlawed. Mm. Um, you know, but but I do think that if you allow people to talk to each other and encourage them to talk to each other, rather than just saying, oh, he's a racist, he has no right to speak. Um, I don't think that I don't think that improves the situation. Right. I don't think that changes the heart of a racist. Um, you know, um, you know, not to get too too heavy into this conversation, but but uh, you know, but just turn it around. I mean, whether it's a religious person, look, I'm sure there are a lot of conservative religious people who find ancient aliens heresy, you know, an abomination. Um, but it's funny because I hear far less criticism from religious people about ancient aliens than I do from secular humanist academics who who just find it, um, you know, anti-scientific, pseudo-scientific. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and look, there are some theories that some of our theorists uh, put forward that I don't agree with. 
Um, and then the argument would be, well, don't you have a responsibility to to include those out? And I'm like, well, no. I why should I be the censor because I don't happen to agree with one of the theories? Um, it doesn't make me right and them wrong just because I don't agree with it. Um, uh, it, but I will put it forward so that the audience can decide whether they agree with it. And it seems that the audience has agreed with you in the sense that you're allowing people to speak because everyone out there has their own opinion. And this is a group of people that have felt stifled by society in sharing that opinion, which brought us to alien con, uh, which was a lot of fun. And people were genuinely nice and polite and open to exchanging ideas, whether it was spiritual or scientific or what someone would call pseudoscientific or anything of that aspect, just to be able to freely exchange ideas. Uh, when you were there and you interacted with the fans, other than arguing with, with Shatner himself, what was it like, their response to you? Oh, well, you know, the fans are, they're curious-minded people who, you know, are having fun, and they, they, they want to meet Giorgio and uh, George Nuri or, or, or David Childress or Linda Moulton-Howe. I mean, we have incredible contributors. And by the way, you know, I, I, I want to just double back to one thing that we said. Um, you know, people are entitled to their opinions, but things that are genuine facts, I don't want to undermine, meaning, in other words, there are real facts yes. and real, you know, I mean, things that are immutable that we're not trying to undermine or, or dismiss. It's just that we do try to separate facts from theory and just, and, and so, no, people are not entitled to make up their own facts. Meaning right. We're not trying to show that has no facts in it and that it's merely opinion. But getting back to AlienCon, no, I think AlienCon was an idea I had years ago. I, I went to a, a convention a friend of mine hosted in uh, uh, Roswell, New Mexico. I'd never been to Roswell. I was invited to come. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I thought, you know, there's really no outlet for the people that are big fans of ancient aliens or ancient astronaut theory. And I've seen UFO conventions and things, but there hasn't really been something that puts everyone together in a big tent. And so, you know, going to the History Channel, um, you know, they decided to kind of partner with us on the idea of, of creating and hosting AlienCon. And um, the one in uh, Los Angeles was the fourth one we had. We previously had one in uh, Baltimore, we had one in Pasadena, we had one up in Santa Clara, California. And the one in Dallas is um, going to be the fifth one. Um, but it's really an opportunity for fans of the show and fans of ancient astronaut theory and UFOologists to come and meet the people that are the contributors to the show, express ideas. Uh, it's been a great place for us to get ideas for new episodes, find out what people have independently researched or what they're curious about. Uh, I would say about a third of the episodes we now do are ideas that are brought to us by the fans at AlienCon. Mm. Um, and uh, and also, Alien, uh, Ancient Aliens has changed, too, because I will say it has gotten better. That mm. as the show has persisted and has gained in popularity and, uh, in some degrees, credibility, because, by the way, there are discoveries, of, and they're in the paper, they're in the New York Times now. They're not just in the weekly world news. Mm -hmm where a lot of things that people thought were fringe and were bizarre or ridiculous when we started the show 11 years ago, right. 12 years ago, um, they're finding out are really happening. You know, there is an Area 51. The government did have an ATIP program. They do have a UFO program. Uh, there are, you know, serious, there are countries and cultures that have um, serious um, uh, connections to uh, the idea of life on other planets. I mean, look, you know, SETI exists to communicate with life on other planets, uh, or some, or you know, I mean, you have, you know, you have our own NASA space missions sending up satellites with recordings and images in the event that they encounter somebody. Now, I'm not going to say that I've seen any evidence that intelligent life exists out in space. Um, but I will say that it's 
become in my lifetime certainly more mathematically probable, uh, if not scientifically inevitable. Right. And if we believe, I mean, let's face it, in my lifetime, we've gone to the moon, we've sent things to Mars and other planets, we're about to go and put humans on Mars. That was, you know, when I was watching Lost in Space in 1965, those things had not happened. Um, that was science fiction. So, um, so be careful what you snicker at, because it could be on the front page of tomorrow's New York Times. Right. Well, I had joked that my dream job is to be the guy listening to static in hopes of making contact for the government. But my luck, I would be the guy that actually made contact. You know, because that guy sits there and listens to static all day and he gets paid for it, I think, 60, 70,000 a year. And I was like, oh, that'd be a great, great gig. Just eight hours of listening to static. But my luck, I'd be the one making contact. And now I have to be the face of the, the contact. Yeah. I mean, the guy who runs <laughs> SETI, Seth Shostak, uh, you know, the outfit that, you know, has the, you know, dozens of satellite dishes out in the middle of nowhere and uh, tries to listen for, you know, he was at Alien Cod and, I, and, and he's a wonderful guy and he's been a, uh, a great friend. Uh, you know, he's very skeptical, which is healthy. Um, and, uh, but I often think when I see him in the audience, you know, like, well, if he's here, who's listening? <laughs> like, like, is this the day when the message came through and he's sitting at Alien Right. <laughs> uh, with AlienCon having traveled around, I mean, there was San Jose, Pasadena, L.A., uh, now Dallas is coming up. Uh, what's the crowd like uh, varying from city to city? I mean, is it the same general vibe across the country, or is, is each one slightly different? Um, no, I would say they're about the same kind of crowd. Um, the largest crowd we had was Pasadena. We had 10,000 people. Um, we had, you know, similar numbers in, uh, Baltimore and in LA this last time. I think a lot of the crowd size has to do with, uh, to be honest, the venue and the timing and, uh, you know, the guest lineup, but the, um, but there are some people who've been to, uh, all of them, um, who go to all the alien cons, which is totally impressive to me. And, um, and I think that, um, but the, but the but the crowd, and it's a it's a varied crowd. I mean, you see some people coming in in wheelchairs. There's some uh, senior citizens. You see, uh, but you see everything from uh, people from South America, from all over the world, coming in from Europe. You see people that are astrophysicists, and um, uh, and uh, uh, people that are you know very hardcore science people, academics. But you also see. You know, a lot of um, armchair fans and enthusiasts who, um, you know, you know are, and and you see some people that are, you know, kind of quaintly bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, but 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 it's it's a nice crowd. Meaning it's a, they're very sweet, um, respectful people. Uh, there's a lot of love in the room. Yeah. I know that the, the people that are the uh, contributors to the show. Uh, you know, Nick Pope and the people I mentioned earlier, um, William Henry and everybody, um, they love going uh, because they're, they're, they're not only are they stimulated, but they're appreciated mm -hmm. because you really get to see who's listening. You get to see who the fans are. And that's very gratifying. I mean, you don't often get that. You know, again, I've done lots and lots of television, but, you know, we don't hear applause. You know, you get ratings like three, four days later, but you don't you don't really get to see who the audience is very often. And that's very exciting. Right. Um, what I like that you were able to do was find a balance between, you know, skeptics and people that are genuinely interested in, in the subject matter and ha give it a Comic-Con style feel. And not too many conventions have been able to find or conferences have been able to find a balance between the two. Well, thanks for that. And I credit the people, you know, at the History Channel and uh, Jill Tully and Susan Leventhal, who are my kind of partners over at the network, and uh, and also the people at Mischief, um, the, the company that actually manages it and, and uh, puts it on. Um, you know, there's a lot of component parts. And my company, Prometheus, because we do Ancient Aliens, we're very involved in booking and staffing a lot of the panels. 
and what the, what a lot of the panel content is. Not all of it, but quite a bit of it. And um, and 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 people who work on the show, producers on the show, will moderate those panels or go- govern those panels. And we get again. It, it get, the, the panel does. In fact, the funny thing is, the very first one we did up in Santa Clara. Um, one of the things we were not prepared for, we you know we thought a, a successful convention would have about four thousand people, um, and uh, especially the first one. And the venue was booked very very late, and we weren't able to get panel rooms that were bigger than about three hundred people. Well, 5,000 people showed up, but, and I'm not exaggerating this, every panel, 3,000 people wanted to get in, and we were like, huh? I mean, literally, the line to get into a panel started like three hours early, and people were mad um, because they couldn't get in, I mean, because it was a 300-seat room, because we thought people were going to come to see movie and TV stars. We didn't, we, we were shocked how many people were there to sit in a panel room. And uh, so now the panel rooms, God bless them, they're like, they seat 2,000. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, they're, and they're full. And you, uh, and you so. premiered an episode of Ancient Aliens at the LA uh, convention. So would you be doing the same thing in Dallas? Probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we always like to do that, is to give people something that uh, they would be, they either missed because on Friday night you want to show them the episode that they're missing at home, uh, or like a sneak peek at what's coming, kind of give, give them an advanced look. I mean, part of the real treat is it's also it's not just a convention of the fans and our ability to meet the fans. It's our way to pay back to the fans. I mean, um, you know, we you know we like to. I mean, it, it, the, the, ancient aliens. Is extraordinary. I mean, you mentioned uh, my doing the girls next door with, you know, Hugh Hefner. Uh, he, I mean, look, I I have had. Uh, I, I'm a lucky guy. I work really hard, but I'm very fortunate. I've met every person I ever idolized as a kid. I've worked with them, um, you know. But I've also done not only a lot of television, most of which I'm very happy about, and very proud of. But I did four television series. Uh, actually, now five, I would say, that are um, that you know really were kind of zeitgeist series. The first one I did was biography on A and E, and we didn't do all of the biographies, uh, but we did about 167 of them, um, mostly movie and television personalities, because I was uh, at that time located uh, at 20th Century Fox. Then the girls next door, which was a lot of fun to do. Uh, Hugh Hefner was a remarkable man, very different than what a lot of people think or assume. Um, and the show was a lot of fun to do. Um, and uh, but it really captured uh, a huge female audience. You know, it was, it was and, and it was uh, a real zeitgeist show. And the next one I would say was Ancient Aliens, of course. And uh, and then most recently, The Curse of Oak Island, which is a phenomenon. Um, now we're shooting our seventh season. It's the number one show, not just on History Channel, uh, but it's the number one show on all of cable on Tuesday nights. Um, it's a huge hit. And, uh, and Lost in Space, the new show on Netflix, which was, that was not an easy nut to crack. Um, I had always wanted to bring Lost in Space back, but it was not easy to do. Um, when New Line made the motion picture in 1998, uh, it showed how not to do it, uh, I thought. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I'm very, very proud of uh, the way we've developed it. Um, you know, my partner John Jashney and I and Zach Estrin and the writers, uh, how we brought it back. And so, so to, to do for kind of television properties that have not only stood the test of time, but have captured a cultural imagination is a real honor to be able to do that. And it's a responsibility to do that. And you try to do that with every show you do, and you don't always succeed, but it is something that um, you do try to do. 
Well, I was pleasantly surprised with what you did with Lost in Space because I was weary after the movie had come out. And to sit there and see that you're still passionate about what you do and, and love what you do, you know, it's it's fantastic. Uh, you know, jokingly, my friend and I were claiming that you guys had spied on us for an episode of Ancient Aliens. Uh, we Both of us have a um, affinity for cryptozoology. And we we had joked as to why nobody can find Bigfoot. And we said, oh, that's easy. It's wormholes. That's how they get around. And then two weeks later, you guys aired an episode about cryptozoology. And one of your specialists had said that Bigfoot gets around using wormholes. I was like, great. The TV show spying on us now. Well, <laughs> uh, no, we weren't spying on you. Um, um, you know, you, you find out that... Uh, you know, somebody joked once, and I, I, I'm probably wrong about the number, but there's only 32 plots ever written, and Shakespeare beat everybody to them. But, um, but you know, I, I, I do take a certain amount of credit. I mean, I work closely on Ancient Aliens with my two executive producers, uh, Max Thompson and David Silver, and and they work with a team of producers and researchers and writers and uh, editors. And I mean, it's it's a lot of people involved in a uh, season of Ancient Aliens, and. Uh, but I've been working on this with Max and David for quite a long time, and 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 you know, and we're always scratching our heads like, how do we do this? What's the approach? What what can we say new? And but I tend to be the more objective party, and I'll come in, you know, at some point, and but sometimes I'll I'll just see something. They think I'm I have some weird connective link to the Akashic record, but um, but but I'll say, what about this? Like we were doing a show on the Loch Ness monster, and I don't know where this came from, but I said, "Well, what if it's not there, but the person taking the picture is in a time bubble, and they're photographing it from ten thousand years ago? Like they're seeing something alive, but it's not alive in our time; it's alive in its time, and it's the person taking the picture that has been transported." And and that was, again, kind of bizarre and insane. Mm-hmm. And then we looked up, is there a scientific possible explanation? Like, could there be some kind of a time-space displacement at Loch Ness? And if so, how does that explain uh, these other similar creatures like ne- uh, Champ in Lake Champlain, near where I used to grow up, or near where I grew up? And... Um, well, come to find out there is something called the Casimir effect, which has to do with crystal, which is, you know, uh, and quartz. Uh, and uh, quartz is a component of granite, and the mountains around Loch Ness and around Lake Champlain are granite, and deep water and water pressure, and that there can be a kind of a, 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 a displacement of energy that could account for um, a time vortex. Well, again, is that the answer? We don't know. But is that an intriguing idea? Wow. Um, you know, who knew that that was a possible explanation for why people photograph these creatures and then you can't find a trace of them? It's a fascinating idea. Well, as, it's as fascinating as uh, wormholes being something that a Yeti <laughs> or Bigfoot can travel through or manipulate. Right. But I'm glad that the show's still going strong and 40 more episodes are coming. These conventions just keep getting bigger and bigger. Uh, personally, I like the Pasadena Convention Center. I, w- I wish uh, you know, AlienCon had returned there this year, but that's my own personal bias. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, honestly, we, we, all, we all feel the same way. It was the most successful of the shows. Um, I think it's the most, um, I mean, no slight to the other venues, but I think it was the most hospitable in terms of you know uh, the restaurants and walking and and the environment uh i think it's more fun to go to that convention center um it was like going to a college campus it was it was great for all reasons look one of the keys of san diego is that it has a home base right and i think what i think what we've been doing in these alien cons is figuring out where the sweet spot is where is the home base for alien con and I think they're pretty close to coming up with an answer. Well, I look forward to it, and hopefully it's Pasadena, because I just thought that's a fantastic and underrated venue. You know, I love everything that you guys are doing there. 
anything that sticks out in your mind that you thought was not necessarily a cockamamie idea, because I don't like to, to diminish anybody's ideology, but that you thought was a little far-fetched that was aired and actually had a great response from the audience? Well, I mean, look, I love David Childress. I, I love him. Uh, he's colorful. He's fun. He's a good guy. Um, but I have to tell you, this was some years ago when we were doing a show on the moon, and we were, and, and the theory was that the moon was an artificially created space station uh, and that it was covered in dust, but it was really made of metal. Uh, and, you know, and, uh, and, and the idea that at some point when something landed on it, the people at NASA thought they heard it ring like a bell. And David just went to town with this on the, on the show. And I'm watching it going, Jesus, we can't say this. This is ridiculous. And, and then everybody shouted me down and said, well, here's the footage from NASA, and here's the evidence, and here's the whatever. And, and, I, and, I, and I backed off and I said, oh, okay, you know. Like, in other words, sometimes I think, you know, we're going to get into a jump the shark moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there are, there are aspects of ancient astronaut theory that I have to say. I'm, you know, we, we just finished a show uh, that's going to come up in a couple of weeks on the reptilians. I've never been a big reptilians fan. Um, you know, I, but, but then when you talk to a scientist um, who says that there is evidence in human DNA that we have kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, reptile functions within our brain that can't be reconciled with mere primate evolution, you go, I, I give up. I, you know, I, you know, like, I, I don't know. So then you kind of just open your mind to maybe there's something to this. I don't know how it happened. Maybe there's something to it. I mean, look, one of the weirdest things about the moon, getting back to the story with David Childress, is um, that, and, and this is just something confounding, is that isn't it interesting that the moon is the exact size, and I mean exact, size that can displace the sun during an eclipse, meaning it is exactly the right size and the right distance from Earth that it covers the sun, not more than the sun and not less than the sun, but exactly the size and proportion of the sun. The, the odds of that are exponential. Um, and given the moon's critical relationship to the tides and to the uh, oceans and, and everything else in terms of the gravitational pull of the planet and, and how that may function, you go, well, is the moon just an, a, an accident of, you know, um, uh, ast- astronomy? Or is it, was it somehow planned? Um, to function and operate in the way it does. Again, do I have the answer? No. Would we examine the question? You better believe it. I dig it, yeah, because everything needs to be questioned at some point. Yeah, I just, I, I always, again, no, no, no slight to science, but I've been around long enough. I, I'll be honest, I'm 64 years old, but when I was a kid, there were a lot of things that were told to us as fact that turned out not to be fact. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the first theory that Columbus was not the first uh, person to land in North America um, and that Leif Erikson may have beat him to it. I remember there was a huge outcry uh, that that was impossible. Well, you know, now you get to a point where, especially in doing Oak Island, I mean, Columbus did discover America for the European powers of the 15 or 1400s, but, um, but, um, but the idea that he was somehow the first human to cross the ocean um, uh, is ridiculous, um, you know. Uh, and uh, but I've also I remember being in high school and being told that we were, you know, there wasn't climate change or global warming at the time; it was global cooling, and we were all told that population growth was going to be such that by the year 2015 there would be no food. Uh, there would be no 
uh, space, there'd be only five feet of space between you and the next human because of overpopulation. Well, that hasn't happened. Um, uh, And yet, these, these things were put forth just as determinedly as the other theories you hear now. So it doesn't necessarily make me doubt science, but um, but I do want to carefully disassociate science theory from actual science fact. Um, there are scientific facts. You know, the fact pyramids exist in Egypt. Fact, we don't know how old they are. We don't know how how they were built. Um, now, they could have been built 4,000 years ago. Um, they could have been built 10 or 12 or 14,000 years ago. The bottom line is a real Egyptian archaeologist, when asked, will privately tell you they don't know. So that allows you to come up with not just make-believe, but it allows you to start investigating, well, then where could they have come from? What does make sense? How do we reconcile this? What else don't we know? And uh, and that's, to me, the fun of ancient aliens. Well, the series is going strong, and it's been a lot of fun, and the conventions have been quite enjoyable. And you're putting your heart and soul into everything, so I'm thrilled for you in that regard. Kevin, out of curiosity, and this is slightly off-topic, just for my own chuckle, what is it with everybody with the last name Burns becoming a documentarian? You, Ken Burns, and there's like three other Burns that are making documentaries now. Well, I don't know about the other three. <laughs> I know that I've been plagued, and I'm sure, uh, you know, I've never met Ken Burns, but I'm sure he's been plagued himself. You know, the funny thing is, my first film uh, that I made as a student filmmaker was a short documentary made in Brooklyn, um, and uh, it was actually about Barbara Streisand's hometown. It was a, it was a it was a kind of a comedy doc about what does it mean to people in Brooklyn that Barbara Streisand grew up there, and this was made in nineteen. I was shooting in the nineteen seventy nine, and uh, well, that same year, uh, Ken Burns was doing one of his early films called The Brooklyn Bridge, and we were using the same film lab, which was Duart in New York, and so I would often call Duart to talk to the owner, and he'd get on the phone all excited, oh Ken. How are you? Blah, 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 blah. And I would say, no, it's Kevin. And then you go, oh, hi, Kevin. <laughs> so I could tell that they liked Ken better than me. Yeah. Uh, he probably spent more money there than I did. Right. But, uh, but, uh, but no, we, 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 I'm sure we've been getting confused all the time. You know, my, um, you know, I, I certainly have great respect for him. Uh, and I think he's done, you know, a, a brilliant job and carved an incredible niche for himself as a documentary filmmaker, you know, he's I'm far more prolific than he is. Um, some would argue he's far classier than I am. Um, you know, he's the, uh, you know, the, he's, he's the, the um, well-respected uh, darling of the PBS crowd. I'm the populist, uh, you know, uh, well, whatever. <laughs> I'm... I'm uh, I'm 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 a little so so when people every once in a while I'll be at some screening or something and somebody will say, oh they'll they'll mishear my name and they'll say oh I love your work I'm such a big fan my wife and I are such big fans of your shows and sometimes I I take the bait and and I say oh thank you they say yes we love baseball we love <laughs> Civil War we love uh, the one you did on the Roosevelts or whatever and I say no that's Ken Burns. I'm Kevin Burns. I always laugh when they go, are you sure? And I say, yes, no, I, I, I didn't do those. And, I, and, and my, my quip uh, is, I do the ones in color. Um, you know, I do the ones in color. So it was interesting when about um, uh, three, four years ago, the History Channel asked me if I would do a documentary on the 150th anniversary of the end of the Civil War, and and they gave me four hours of which in which to do it, a fairly limited budget, and um, and and there and it was like we want it done in this such and such style, and I said please I don't want to do it, I said I do not want to do the Civil War, I wanted to do it, but I begged them not to let me do it, 
And and they said, why not? Why won't you do it? I said, because Ken Burns had a much bigger budget. He had much more hours. And um, and I'm so tired of being compared to him that, you know, like I don't want to be doing the the roadshow version of the Civil War, you know, against Ken Burns. I, like, I don't want to do the same thing because there's only so many, many ways you can do it. And, you know, and they and they begged me to reconsider. And I begged them to let me out of it and 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 uh and then i thought of what i just told you that quote i'm the one who does them in color so i literally scratched my head and said could i do the civil war in color and found out that there had been tremendous advances in colorizing black and white photographs and of course footage you've just seen peter jackson do it with his world war one documentary and uh, but this was even before that, and uh, when I found there were some extraordinary people doing extraordinary work, turning black and white photographs into color, and not just looking like old tinted postcards, but real color photographs. So I said, if I can do the Civil War in color, I'll do it, because at least that's something that, God bless him, Ken Burns has not done. And uh, and we did. We did four hours. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it got really no marketing and no attention, and the Civil War is something that a lot of people are not really comfortable revisiting anymore, unfortunately. But um, I have to say it's one of the things I'm proudest of, and if people want to look it up, you can get it on Amazon.com. But <clears throat> but the, the History Channel ran it, and uh, and I got a tremendous amount of feedback from uh, teachers and uh, historians uh, who praised the show. It's very gritty. It's very dark because, uh, you know, we took a very uncompromising and a very honest look at the Civil War um, and uh, and not a propagandistic look either. I mean, a very even-handed look from both the perspective of North and South. And uh, uh, But it but in, in color, colorizing these pictures um, was, you know, really brings it alive. And uh, and we have found since then, uh, virtually all of our shows, whether it's Ancient Aliens or whatever, we employ that same technique because um, not only are younger and younger audiences less patient with black and white, and they just won't watch things in black and white, unfortunately, but, um, but in terms of, at least in, in terms of these Civil War images, color really brought these things live and made them immediate in a way that um you know uh you know Abraham Lincoln and Robert E Lee you know otherwise just appeared as ghosts well it's fascinating stuff that you're doing with all of this and i know ancient aliens still airs friday nights uh kevin where can we find you on social media and your own personal website if people want to connect with you i would rather die uh, I don't. I, I don't really have time for social media and a personal website. Um, no, I really. I just really don't. Uh, I mean, if, if people are lost in space geeks, um, there are a couple of fan sites uh, uh, on the classic series and on the new Netflix reboot um, that I uh, will occasionally chime in on, um, either to give some news or to uh, you know dis disabuse people of false information but um you know i i tend to follow the lost in space sites because of course that's like a real secret love of mine and um not so secret actually <laughs> but the um uh but no i i'm not i'm not i don't have time i mean we're literally at a point where we're doing uh about a hundred hours of television right now which is two hours a week uh so i barely have time to watch the shows i'm I'm sending out into the world, um, which, but I do. I watch every show and work on the script for every show. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very hands-on. Sometimes that drives my producers crazy. Um, I actually have a group of editors waiting outside the room right now, waiting for me to give notes on one of the William Shatner shows. But the, um, but no, I, I, um, I, I'm, I if people want to get in touch with me, they can either. Uh, Find me out through my company, Prometheus Entertainment, or um, or hit me up at AlienCon. Well, Kevin Burns, AlienCon, uh, the weekend of October 4th. 
In Dallas, Texas, uh, everybody in the southwest and southern states that are available to go or flying in internationally, uh, I hope they have a good time because we had a great time in Los Angeles and in Pasadena last year. Uh, Kevin, have a great rest of the week, and we will definitely be talking to you soon. Ancient, Co- uh, Ancient Aliens airs on History Channel on Friday nights. Thank you so much. Friday nights, 9 o'clock, and, or cable could be different, but uh, yeah, and... Uh and look for The Unexplained. It premieres a week from tonight. Ooh, unexplained coming at the end of July. This is perfect. Uh, good yeah. time. Always a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully we get a chance to grab a coffee together face-to-face at some point. Anytime.